Chapter Seventeen of Excuse Me by Rupert Hughes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Seventeen. Last Call for Breakfast. It was still Iowa when Mallory awoke. Into his last moments of heavy sleep intruded a voice like a town crier's voice, crying, "Last Call for Breakfast in the Rhine and Raw." And then again louder last call for breakfast and run and raw and finally and faintly last call breakfast rah rah mallory pushed up his window shade the day was broad on rolling prairies like billows established in the green soil he peeked through his curtains most of the other passengers were up and about their beds hidden and beddings stowed away behind the bellying veneer of the upper works of the car all the berths were made up except his own and number two in the corner where little jimmy wellington's nose still played a bagpipe monody and one other berth which he recognized as marjorie's his belated sleep and hers had spared them both the stares and laughing chatter of the passengers but this bridal couple's two berths standing like towers among the seats had provided conversation for everybody had already united the casual group of strangers into an organized gossip bee mallory got into his shoes and as much of his clothes as was necessary for the dash to the washroom and took on his arm the rest of his wardrobe just as he issued from his lonely chamber marjorie appeared from hers much dishevelled and heavy-eyed the bride and groom exchanged glances of mutual terror and hurried in opposite directions the spickest and spannest of lieutenants soon realized that he was reduced to wearing yesterday's linen as well as yesterday's beard this was intolerable a brave man can endure heartbreaks loss of love honor and place but a neat man cannot abide the traces of time in his toilet lieutenant mallory had seen rough service in camp and on long hikes when he gloried in mud and disorder and he was to see campaigns in the philippines when he should not take off his shoes or his uniform for three days at a time but that was the field and this car was a drawing-room in this crisis in his affairs little jimmy wellington waddled into the men's room floundering about with every lurch of the train like a cannon loose in the hold of a ship he fumbled with the handles on a basin and made a crazy toilet trying to find some abatement of his fever by filling a glass at the ice-water tank and emptying it over his head these drastic measures restored him to some sort of coherency and mallory appealed to him for help in the matter of linen wellington effusively offered him everything he had and mallory selected from his store half a dozen collars any one of which would have gone round his neck nearly twice wellington also proffered his safety razor and made him a present of a virgin wafer of steel for his very own with this assistance mallory was enabled to make himself fairly presentable when he returned to his seat the three curtained rooms had been whisked away by the porter there was no place now to hide from the passengers he sat down facing the feminine end of the car watching for marjorie the passengers were watching for her too hoping to learn what unheard-of incident could have provoked the quarrel that separated a bride and groom at this time of all times to the general bewilderment when marjorie appeared mallory and she rushed together and clasped hands with an ardor that suggested a desire for even more ardent greeting the passengers almost sprained their ears to hear how they would make up such a dreadful feud but all they heard was we'll have to hurry marjorie if we want to get any breakfast all right honey come along 
Then the inscrutable couple scurried up the aisle, and disappeared in the corridor, leaving behind them a mighty riddle. They kissed in the corridor of that car, kissed in the vestibule, kissed in the two corridors of the next car, and were caught kissing in the next vestibule by the new conductor. The dining-car conductor, who flattered himself that he knew a bride and groom when he saw them, escorted them grandly to a table for two, and the waiter fluttered about them with extraordinary consideration. They had a plenty to talk of, in prospect and retrospect. They both felt sure that a minister lurked among the cars somewhere, and they ate with a zest to prepare for the ceremony, arguing the best place for it, and quarrelling amorously over details. Mallory was for one of the vestibules as the scene of their union, but Marjorie was for the baggage-car, till she realized that Snoozlums might be unwilling to attend. Then she swung round to the vestibule, but Mallory shifted to the observation platform. Marjorie had left Snoozelums with Mrs. Temple, who promised to hide him when the new conductor passed through the car, and she reminded Harry to get the waiter to bring them a package of bones for their only child so far. On the way back from the dining-car they kissed each other good-bye again at all the trysting places they had sanctified before. The sun was radiant, the world good, and the very train ran with jubilant rejoicing. They could not doubt that a few more hours would see them legally man and wife. Mallory restored Marjorie to her place in their car, and with smiles of assurance left her for another parson-hunt through the train. She waited for him in a bridal agitation. He ransacked the train forward in vain, and returned, passing Marjorie with a shake of the head and a dour countenance. He went out to the observation platform, where he stumbled on Ira Lathrop and Anne Gattle, engaged in a conversation of evident intimacy, for they jumped when he opened the door, as if they were guilty of some plot. Mallory mumbled his usual excuse me, whirled on his heel, and dragged his discouraged steps back through the observation-room, where various women and a few men of evident unclericality were draped across armchairs and absorbed in lazy conversation or bobbing their heads over magazines that trembled with the motion of the train. Mrs. Wellington was busily writing at the desk, but he did not know who she was, and he did not care whom she was writing to. He did not observe the baleful glare of Mrs. Whitcomb, who sat watching Mrs. Wellington, knowing all too well who she was, and suspecting the correspondent. Mrs. Whitcomb was tempted to spell the word with one R. Mallory stumbled into the men's portion of the composite car. Here he nodded with a sickly cheer to the sole occupant, Dr. Temple, who was looking less ministerial than ever in an embroidered skull-cap. The old rascal was sitting far back on his lumbar vertebrae. One of his hands clasped a long glass filled with a liquid of a hue that resembled something stronger than what it was—mere ginger ale. The other hand toyed with a long black cigar. The smoke curled round the old man's head like the fumes of a sultan's nargilly, and through the wisps his face was one of oriental luxury. Mallory's eyes were caught from this picture of beatitude by the entrance at the other door of a man who had evidently swung aboard at the most recent stop, for Mallory had not seen him. His gray hair was crowned with a soft black hat, and his spare frame was swathed in a frock-coat that had seen better days. His soft gray eyes seemed to search timidly the smoke-clouded atmosphere, and he had a bashful air which Mallory translated as one of diffidence in a place where liquors and cigars were dispensed. With equal diffidence Mallory advanced and in a low tone accosted the newcomer cautiously. "'Excuse me. You look like a clergyman.' "'The hell you say!' Mallory pursued the question no further. End of chapter 17